First Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 6, we'll go to verse 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that your Spirit would be with us. We pray in the name of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Redeemer, who is the Morning Star who is our Lord and the life giver. We pray that it is in this new life that you have given us by faith and by grace that truly nothing we have is of our own making. Everything we have is from you. And so we do pray, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that you would be with us this evening, that the truth of your word would go forth and that we would be strengthened in our godly character and our obedience to you, that we might delight in these truths, that we would be content in the truth of your word. God, be with us this evening. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Steve. I am continuing in the series through First Timothy, uh, going verse by verse if, you, if you've been with us. Uh, As we know, Paul is writing to his disciple and his son in the faith, Timothy, and he also writes to the church in Ephesus, and he writes to you and I. He gives us this letter for our encouragement and for our edification. And so we will go into the passage this evening, and the goal this evening is to see uh, the great gain of godliness with contentment, the great godliness with contentment. And so we'll see this defined in verses 6 and 7. We'll see what this looks like in verse 8, and then the folly of discontentment in verses 9 and 10. That's what Paul wants for you and I, is to be content. That is, delighting in God, resting in God, resting in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And the hope is that Godliness, that is the path of the Christian, the way of sanctification and growth in our Christian life, our piety, our growth in grace, uh, would be one of delight, that we would embrace it no matter the circumstances, uh, whether they be easy or difficult. Uh, Paul says very clearly in Philippians 4, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so Paul is going to give us this godliness with contentment. He's going to illustrate this for us, but 
To give us some context, where we're we coming out of is verses 4 and 5. He is speaking of the false teachers that are going around. They are puffed up with conceit. They know nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy, verse 4, uh, for quarrels about words, envy, dissension, and slander, and known for evil suspicions. There is constant friction within the church that they are the cause of. They have a depraved mind. They're deprived of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And the gain here is a financial gain. They're looking at godliness and thinking there's a way to make money is that perhaps if I could be godly, I can gain financially from godly character. And so Jesus, as we know, was speaking of the Pharisees back in the New Testament. He spoke often of those that would seek wealth through devouring widows' houses. Uh, They would seek great honor and power. Uh, Pharisees were known for their holiness and their piety. Uh, But Jesus, as we know, he calls them out for their self-righteousness and their pride. And so today, much the same way as we see in verses 4 and 5, Jesus saw in his day, Paul saw in his day, that we have many false teachers that are infiltrating the church. They are coming in and they are using the faith as a means of financial gain. And Paul is saying in verse 6, there is gain. There is much to be gained from godliness. Commit yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Follow me and be a fisher of men. Pick up your cross and follow me. These callings on our lives are for our profit, and godly character is a result of sanctification and growing in grace. But the gain is not financial wealth. The gain is not something uh, that we are uh, seeking out for a financial purpose. The great gain of godliness is knowing God, is being in fellowship with God. It is growing in personal holiness, growing in our obedience, growing in our Christ-likeness, being more and more like our Savior. And in doing so, we delight in God as we see the wisdom in God's law and He guides us on the right path, we do see the wisdom of God and we start to enjoy the Christian walk with its challenges, with its blessings. We start to delight in our obedience to the Lord. Short of Catechism 1, first question they give us, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him. We're to enjoy the Lord. We are to gain much as we are uh, not conformed to the world, Romans 12, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. These are blessings to us. We have a new relationship with God. As we were enmity with God, we were in rebellion against God. Now we look to God as a loving, heavenly Father. He has adopted us into the family of God. We see God the Son, we see the Lord Jesus Christ, who we were at one point, again, rebellious against and in war with, but now Christ has become our Lord and our Savior. And we should pursue these things as we grow in grace. Paul spoke earlier in 1 Timothy about uh, training yourself in godliness, to pursue this as 
something that we want to attain. There's a race to be ran, and we want to run well. We want to grow. We want to do well in our Christian race. We want to do well in our Christian life. And so we want to pray on these things. We want to consider the wisdom of God in His Word. We want to study Scripture. And as we look heavenward, my hope, and I think the hope of the Apostle Paul here, is that we minimize the things of this world. We see the eternal reality of heaven and hell, and it puts an urgency on our hearts to share the gospel, but also to minimize this temporary life. So we see in verse 6 what godliness with contentment is. This is real godly character, piety. This is prayer. This is obedience to the Lord. Uh, It's marked with contentment. The word contentment in the original language there would be complete or sufficient. We have our completeness uh, in Christ, our sufficiency in the Lord. We see that the Holy Spirit begins to uh, shape the way in which we look at our temporary life here, but also eternity. Uh, He orients us, He calibrates us, and directs us towards the things of God, towards the Word of God. And we begin to cherish these eternal truths. We're to look toward our future communion with God for an eternity. And our contentment is not just satisfied in these possessions. Again, we are hoping and looking to that eternal hope that Christ provides. And it gives us pause and we have to ask ourselves, what is our attitude towards the things of this world? Paul reminds us that we brought, verse 7, nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. We are born, we have nothing. We have clothes and food and shelter waiting on us, but we are born into the world with nothing to our name. Infants, when they are born in the hospital, they don't care how big their house is. They don't care how big your bank account is as their parents. Uh, They are content. If they're fed, if they're rested, they have perhaps a toy to play with. These basic things, these basic necessities, children are happy. Those that are near death or on their deathbed, if you've ever talked to someone who is right there at the end, they have little to no concern about how much money they have in their account. If anything, they look back at the time that they spent overtime at work and they sadly wish that they had spent a little bit more time with their families. They wish they had been a greater witness for Christ to unbelieving friends and family members. There is a thinking about those that will live on past them. And perhaps the money might be given to family members that they can be taken care of and provided for. And men, I'm sure, that start businesses. They probably treat that business. A lot of entrepreneurs will say it's kind of like their own child. They've nurtured it and grown it over time and and developed a company. Uh, Some men even amassing fortunes, millions and billions of dollars. And the moment that they leave this earth, They will have none of it. All those possessions, all the things that they worked so hard for, they will have none of it. And they will stand before the Lord, and they will give an account for the stewardship of this money. And Paul is teaching us these things so that it would shape the way that we view money, that we view wealth in this life. 
We should be sure that we, again, have a biblical perspective on what money and wealth and what contentment really is in God. Verse 8, we see contentment illustrated. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Paul is not suggesting that we have no uh, material possessions. He does point to food and clothing. He points to necessities. Uh, There are some traditions that view the distributive method of Acts chapter 2, giving to all those that are in need. It's some sort of Christian communism uh, where we don't own anything technically. Um, Some I've even heard say that private property is an abomination, uh, which again, no, thou shalt not steal, presupposes that there are things to be stolen that belong to someone. There are things that can be taken. Uh, We do believe in private ownership. We do believe in basic necessities. Uh, Chapter 4 spoke very clearly against those that forbid good and right things, forbid marriage and and forbid foods that are given by God as a blessing to us. It's not money that is a bad thing. It is the way in which we handle money that can be a bad thing. I think of our society, a lot of people, they're just trying to make ends meet. They're not struggling over which yacht to buy, which luxury automobile to buy. They're A lot of people are just trying to pay the rent. They're just trying to get by, and I understand. And we would tell them boldly, yes, money and work to get money is a necessity. Where we should try to make ends meet, we should work diligently so that we can provide for ourselves and for our families. We're told in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It isn't money that is wrong. It's our attitude towards money. But we're motivated to work hard. Proverbs 12, verse 24, The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. We are called to work hard, to make a profit, and to provide for our basic needs. And it is the Lord that gives us these things. 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7 tells us the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. Money is something that is given from God to all those, both believers and unbelievers. Those that go out and labor diligently can receive money and it is a blessing from God. But then looking back to Moses, again, our attitudes are the focus here. The way that we view money can be the problem. A little reminder from Moses, back when he saw that Israel was getting away from God, they were focusing on their money, focusing on their profit, forgetting where their blessings really came from. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and my might of my hand have given me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. God is reminding Israel through Moses, remember, God is the one that blessed you. God is the one that gives you another day to live, to breathe. He is the one that provides the rain, that grows the crops, that allows you to receive this food and water as a blessing from God. We must remember that every physical thing that we have is a product of a resource that God has given by His grace, and we must focus on that truth as we receive blessings from the Lord. 
Looking back at Job, a man that was righteous before the Lord, he had great wealth. He had a big family, he had resources, he had cattle, he had everything, and he lost everything. Even his physical health, as he's scraping the boils off himself, he still says, having lost everything, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then in Job 19, remember, he has nothing. He's been not comforted by three bad counselors who are trying to comfort him, to, their, uh, to be fair. But still, Job gains no comfort from his friends. And finally, in Job 19, there's this great crescendo where he declares, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. God used Job to make a point against Satan, that I will take all these temporary, transient, earthly, material things from my servant Job, and he will praise the Lord. Because he has the right perspective on where his things come from. They come from a holy God that has loved him, that has redeemed him, that has saved him by faith, that has given him a saving faith to look unto a Redeemer that washes away all his sins, that gives him a perfect righteousness by faith. And all these things, all the things of this world, fade into the back while he puts forward Christ and looks to this Messiah that's promised to him. And so again, money is not bad, it's our attitude towards money. It's not the things of this world that are bad, but how tied to these things are we? And in our culture, I think there is a sense where we are bound to these things. We see it in the news, we see it in advertisement. We are bombarded with things to buy and advertising dollars in the billions for us to buy the newest and greatest thing. Uh, This has become a thing in the middle class called middle class abundance, where most middle class Americans live, uh, they're at their means and a little bit more, uh, where we begin to clutter our homes with new and greater things. Uh, People camping out in front of Apple stores waiting for the newest iPhone to come out, Uh, literally for days at times in the rain, just hoping for a new iPhone. And I'm reminded when I think about that, that Every cell phone in here, every computer, every monitor, all these things will be in yard sales, in junkyards. They will all be tossed away. All these things won't matter. And what will matter is whether or not we are believing by faith, if we are trusting in Christ, and that we will, our souls will go on past this. All these physical things will remain here. But Is our soul right with God? Are we right with the Lord? It doesn't matter about our worldly wealth. What matters is, again, our attitude towards it. And we see this, the pitfalls. We see pitfalls of discontentment in verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Teddy Roosevelt said, a vote is like a rifle. Its usefulness depends on the character of the user. And I think that's exactly the way that money is. It depends on the character of the user. I think in the hands of Abraham, he would use a million dollars in a righteous and godly way. I think Christian business owners can take millions of dollars, employ hundreds of people, and provide thousands of dollars for them to feed and clothe and house their families, and they can care for their workers in a good and righteous way. It's not a bad thing to, to attain this money. The hope is that we would do well with this money, that we would channel these dollars that God has given us in good and right ways. The issue is when we start to love these things, and there's a desire for riches that can be dangerous and dangerous to the point that it can affect our eternal soul. We have to be careful about this because it can quickly become an idol in our own heart. At the peak of his wealth, John D. Rockefeller, he owned 90% of all the oil and gas industry. His net worth was estimated to be 1% of the U.S. economy. And finally, someone said, how much money is enough money? Like, when will have you arrived? Like, how much is enough? And very famously, he said, just a little bit more. There was this inordinate desire within his heart to just get a little bit more, a little bit more. And unfortunately, that's the way that a lot of Americans view money. They are hoping to get rich or die in pursuit of these riches Uh, As though to think everything will be perfect if I can get this car or if I can get this outfit, these material things, and then my life will be complete, as though that will satisfy. Think of the rich fool in Luke 12. man came to Jesus and said, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possession." And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Notice the false sense of security that this man has. I have all the physical things that I need. I have all the food that I need. I've built the bigger barns and filled them up. And so now my soul is at rest. But God says to him, Fool, the night your soul is required of you, the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This rich young ruler was a fool. He was not Prepared. He was prepared in a physical sense. He had all the physical things that he needed, but he did not have his soul right with the Lord. He was not looking toward eternity. He was not considering the eternality of his place before God. And sadly, he was not in belief. But again, this is the way that false teachers work back in Paul's day. This is how false teachers work in our day through the prosperity gospel. It loops people in by promising them 
financial blessings, uh, saying that God wants you to be rich. He wants you to partner with Him, partner with God, and then He will, by faith, make you rich. If you have faith, you will be rich. And a lighter version of this, at times, will be minimizing sin, not talking about the, the eternal nature of heaven and hell, the need for genuine repentance over sin. These are bad words, so they'll polish up the language and promise you uh, good things and what they don't take into consideration is that you might be saved and eternally go into heaven, but it might be the year that family members die and you lose much. Like Job, he believed, but he lost everything. That prosperity gospel will not hold water when you come in with a message that says all things are going to be good for you. All these material blessings are going to be there for you. The hope is that our faith will be in Christ so that if we lost everything, we can hope in Him. That we have a foundation that is in Christ, that we delight in Him and love Him, and despite losing everything, that we would be content in Christ. John Piper speaks on the prosperity gospel, and he says, This sort of message is the very thing that leads people into these piercings of pangs, namely the desire to be rich. It is nurtured and cultivated by these prosperity preachers. They are encouraging this sort of behavior to happen. He continues, I don't mean to be say it's sinful to make a lot of money. What I'm saying is it's sinful to keep a lot of money, to hoard on to that money, to hoard it and to hold it and to not channel it into God-honoring ways. And it is spiritually suicidal to want to keep a lot of money to build these bigger barns and bigger cars and bigger houses, bigger portfolios and finer clothes. Everything is growing with your income so that your conscience is getting harder and harder because if you're a Christian at this point, your conscience is having to say, it's okay, it's okay, this is the Calvary Road, this is what it means to deny yourself, this is what it means to follow Jesus, this is what it means to die every day, this is what it means to have your treasures in heaven. And it doesn't. It doesn't work. That is not the message of the gospel. This is a false sense of comfort in this prosperity gospel. Paul is clear here that there is a desire for more and more and more, and it will rob you of your eternal soul. It is the root of all kinds of evil. The desire to be rich will pull men in different directions to commit all kinds of sin, including theft and murder. Money can build churches in the right hands, but it can also tear men down in the wrong hands. People are so enamored by wealth and prosperity that ultimately it will lead them to destruction. So much so, and Paul warns us here, that it will lead you outside of the faith. We must take this warning as very seriously here. We get, we get settled in here. We get used to our membership and our citizenship here on earth. We get tied into these things and tied into our mortgages and our homes. And, and it's not wrong to have a home. Again, it's, it's our attitude toward the physical things of this world. The Apostle Paul Jesus had no place to rest his head. These men were missionaries going out, traveling all around. These men had the joy of doing the work of the Lord. They 
were delighting in these things and they knew that the physical things of this world could start to own their affections and then it can own them. We must be careful. The things of this world can begin to own us. That's what greed is. Greed is covetousness in action. We, think it, we don't think of the Tenth Commandment. We tend to go to the Seventh Commandment, Sixth Commandment, the more glaring sins, but covetousness is a sin that can sway us. It's greed in action, and it can pull us in various ways. So a few questions to ask ourselves. What is our relationship with material things? Think about the accessibility of Amazon and online shopping and the availability to send things right to our homes. What's our relationship toward buying various things? Are we buying things that we need? Are we buying things that we don't need? Things that we just simply want. Things to add to our middle class abundance. Do you view these things as an answer to your life's needs? What do you need in life and does it tend to be a physical thing? There will be one day where we will stand before the Lord and we will give a stewardship of the material blessings that God has given us. And I hope that we can stand tall and say, I was a steward of the physical money, capital, resources that you blessed us with. In closing, I want to highlight, I think I've mentioned him before, but I love George Mueller. George Mueller was a Reformed Baptist minister, a bit of an eccentric He was a minister in Bristol, England. He started up a ministry there in Bristol where he would feed, clothe, and scripturally educate orphans. Orphans were everywhere in Bristol. And over 50 years of ministry, he built five large orphan houses and cared for 10,024 orphans in his life. They never asked for donations directly. He would pray directly to God and say, God, you must provide for these orphans. He never took a salary the last 68 years of his ministry. He just trusted God to put it on people's hearts to send him what they needed. He never took out a loan. They never went into debt. And they never went hungry. And the estimations today... By today's standard, how much money he raised was about $150 million over the life of his ministry. Grace Church, let us work. Let us work hard. Let us be diligent in our work in the workforce, but also let us work hard and diligent training in godliness. Let us find our true contentment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And every day that we are blessed with physical means, let us view them as a gift from God. Everything we have, everything we'll ever own, is on loan from God. And so let us be good stewards of God's material blessings and let us spiritually be ready to face the Lord the day that He calls us home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do know that you are the great provider. You are the one that gives us all that we need. We do ask that you would put on our hearts this evening a love for you, a love for your Son who has blessed us in every spiritual way. 
He is our Lord. He is our Redeemer. He is our friend. He is the one that we look to this evening. God, we do ask that you would write these truths on our hearts, that we would magnify heaven and minimize the ways of the world. You send somebody pray. Amen.